Mark 11, verses 12 to 21. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you crushed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. Let me grab a seat. So we are on in Gospel of Mark again, following Jesus on the way to the cross. We are on Mark 10 a bit. I'm skipping ahead to here because uh, Angie preached on the triumphal entry the week before Easter, before we had a good amount of time at the end of Mark 10 there. And so this text is right after the triumphal entry. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem, it says he looks around at everything and then leaps after like a major entry with fanfare. And when he comes back, he has this instance with the fig tree and the temple. We're going to go a lot of different ways today, but the highlight of it all is to say that God looks for fruit of sincere faithfulness in his people. And as we think about this, the main question I'm thinking about is what are those non-negotiable aspects of sincere faithfulness? I think we're going to see two as we break this text down together. But to get there, I want to go through these kind of three point, or four points. The first is talking about our context and Jesus' context. We have a bit that we need to set up with this passage because of how often it is invoked in our culture about Jesus flipping tables and using the whips and all that kind of stuff. We need to kind of put that in its place to get to the true problem with the temple and with the people of God that Jesus is addressing here. And then that kind of will finally get us to the, the main point. It might take us a bit to get there, but it's important to weed out some stuff to get to the main point that Jesus, I think, is drawing attention to, two non-negotiable aspects of sincere faithfulness, and that would apply to all generations of the faith, including ours now, and of course, how we are called to respond to that. So when we first start to look at this passage, we first see this crazy text here. It seems out of character for Jesus that he overturns tables of the money changers in the temple and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He comes in there explosively, it seems like, flipping tables. And that is attention drawing to us because if you've been reading Mark up until now, this seems somewhat out of character for Jesus. And it's natural for us as readers to ask the question, how would we understand this behavior in our context? We look at things that are similar in our culture and then fit Jesus into that. What's a story that this would fit into? And if you think about our culture now, this looks similar to what we would see as political activism or protests that is fueled by righteous anger. There's no shortage of instances in our culture that it does allow freedom to protest, that many people take advantage of that and participate. And maybe some of you have participated as well, and sometimes that is driven by a righteous anger, meaning it's about good stuff, 
and it is fueled by a, a strong passion, even angry about the right things. They're even mad about what they should be mad about and sometimes do actions, not just words, that help demonstrate that, from marching to, I don't know, people have thrown paint onto like art and that kind of stuff to draw attention to their message. And so we are tempted to kind of put that in there, and if that's the case, because we follow Jesus, we think if Jesus sometimes had occasions where he had righteous anger and showed that by speaking truth to power, then we should do that too, and I would say maybe. That's a partial truth. But one problem with this is the question, what was the eventual outcome of this choice from Jesus? He made this choice, and what did it lead to? He died very quickly. Like, less than a week after this, he was hanging on a cross. And I would note that many times when protest happens in our culture, even when Christians participate, there is more of a self-righteous indignation, I want to win, than there is public suffering. So if you are, this sermon is not about protesting, but if you are, would do that as a Christian, it should look more like Martin Luther King and the people that followed him, where there was a, there was a public suffering to it. The witness involved a public suffering, not a public winning. But so that's one thing. If we're going to follow Jesus here, there's some public suffering there. Think about all that preceded this as well. But the other question is, does Jesus behave at any other time like this? Does he tell the disciples to? If you read the book of Acts, you ever see instances of this, of, a, of this kind of public, almost righteous anger. You might hear a public preaching, and sometimes it has impacts on the surrounding culture, but in the letters as well, all throughout the New Testament, you don't see this. And so I would think that that would lead me to think this might not be about normalizing political protests from a righteous anger, but might be about something else. But if we start every question we read the Bible is how does this fit into our context, that question leads to those kind of answers. It's not a bad question to start with, but I want to start usually the question with how would Jews, the original people that read this, understand this behavior in Jesus' context. It's crucial as we interpret the Bible that the things we read there are grounded in a story. And sometimes that process of learning that requires some effort, and it invites opportunities for confusion in. And so we are, get frustrated about that and want to rush straight to kind of putting that into our culture. But it's actually good news that God actually is so ingrained in a, a local, grounded, human context that his actions happen in real time and space and history. And for us to grasp those well for today, it's important to start there. So the, the Bible was not written uh, to us, but it's written for us. And it's written, written to Jewish people at that point in time, and it's, that is the primary context we should start with to get what's really going on and then jump to our context today. And so for a Jew reading this, they see this stuff about the fig tree and a light bulb would go off. Something's going on here. And so Jesus comes in, he sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf, and he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. They noticed this thing with the fig tree. That would trigger for them, maybe, this reading from Micah 7. People in that time knew their Old Testament very well, like had to memorize it. And so they might think about this passage and many other like it in Micah. This is like 700 years before Jesus. This prophet says, what misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, and there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. 
not one upright person remains. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. And so there's a long stream of Hebrew prophets whose main job was to be a mouthpiece for God. They were a part of the people, but also were given a special vocation to speak to the people from God's perspective, and they were covenant enforcers. They were reminding people, hey, we have this covenant with God that calls us to live like this. He's watching. He cares. We better back up and live the way he called us to because he's watching, and one day he will judge. And so the fig tree is a metaphor for God's people, and it would trigger people's minds for Jesus' people that God's visitation, which is when he's going to judge them, is coming. He's paying attention. He's looking for sincere faithfulness, and he's going to come judge. When they see the fig tree thing, that's on their mind. And so this is less political protest and more a prophetic demonstration where Jesus is standing in line with Micah to tell the truth to God's people about their lack of faithfulness and a warning to them to pay attention because God's paying attention. It's a challenge then to God's people to live up to who they are. And this is what his truth is telling. He's shutting down the essential functions of the temple. He's judging it, and he's declaring it obsolete. Not because the temple was a terrible idea. God was behind that in the Old Testament. The temple served a purpose for a time, but it had become corrupt from top down and bottom up. God's people were not living into their calling that Jesus drew attention to. He's judging it and declaring it obsolete because Jesus is now the temple. I realize, we doing okay, man? Are y'all going to sleep? Y'all be like, oh my gosh, I'm getting tired now. He's just droning on here about stuff. It's going to get somewhere, I promise you. But the temple is the intersection between heaven and earth, where heaven and earth overlap. People were separated from God, and God's like, I'm desperate for my people back. They will join with me again. But that's a long process to clean up the mess that humanity got themselves in and reconnect us. A piece of that process is the temple. God's like, we're going to have a temple here. I'm going to dwell there, and you're going to have to do sacrifices to kind of remember why we were separate in the first place. But that was all a signpost on the way to a destination, which is where we are now, where you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God now dwells in you. We don't go to temple anymore, not because none of this stuff matters anymore, but because we have, God has fulfilled the story where he now dwells in your very body. That's where the intersection between heaven and earth is. And so on the way to that, Jesus is saying, this physical temple is done. It is not what it should be. I'm shutting down all operations because Jesus has been doing what the temple does. He's been forgiving people of sins and healing diseases and that kind of thing. And he's like, this is a, a primary, unique moment in the history of God's people on the way to something more. This is getting, now we're getting to it here. And so why? What is the actual problem there that he's critiquing? When we ask that question... We are naturally drawn, well, he's, he's talking about sincere faithfulness. I've already hit that a bunch of times. So he, we go straight to this verse, that he overturned tables of money changers and the people carrying merchandise through the temple courts. So we think this is unique, and because that's the recipient of his action, that must be the problem. And so we're like, oh gosh, we better not have churches selling books in the lobby. Can't I have church merch? Because that seems too much like the temple and we can't have the church making money. That's not actually the point. This is actually normal stuff. These people aren't getting rich off this. They're actually promoting a healthy service because people are traveling a long way to the temple. They're going to sacrifice animals, and the animals need to be like healthy and well. And if you have a long journey 
with your animal to the temple, and I'm just not talking about like packing them in a nice truck so we can get them there with AC and good food and water. It's like that animal's got to make it on the journey, and it might have something happen to it that it becomes not able to be sacrificed. And so there was naturally temples there to say, hey, just sell your animal back at home, bring the money with you, you can buy a sacrifice here and do the temple service there. So Jesus is not saying there's something wrong with the process of the buying and the selling. These people are blue-collar workers. They're at the bottom of the temple. They're not making any money. They're just doing a normal service for the temple. But his action of doing this is to say this whole operation needs to end. That's the real emphasis. So instead of drawing attention to those things, draw attention to this next verse that's pulling again from the Old Testament. This is all fitting in a long story that's finding its winding road ending with Jesus. And if we want to pay attention to what sincere faithfulness is looking like and why God thinks something is wrong and Jesus thinks something is wrong, we need to appeal to these Old Testament passages. They essentially say the same thing. I'm going to stick with Jeremiah 7. We talk about sincere faithfulness here. Jeremiah says this. This is where we're going to live for the next little bit. We got there because Jesus invokes this passage to judge the temple. Everybody tracking with me? Anybody stuck? Anybody not be like, what are we talking about now? We can talk about it afterwards, man. It's dry, man. We're getting through it, though. This is the word that came from Jeremiah the Lord. This is 700 years before Jesus, 600 years before Jesus. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house where all the worshipers are coming, and there announce this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come to these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place do not trust deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So what's happening here? On the surface, they are going to worship the Lord. But that is a deception in Jesus' mind and God's mind in Jeremiah because they are lacking a sincere faithfulness. This is where the fig tree metaphor comes into play. From afar, Jesus notices it has leaves. So he gets close to it, though, and notices it lacks fruit because it's out of season. In the same way with temple worshipers from afar, they look like they're worshiping God well. But upon closer inspection, they are lacking essentials of sincere, honest, authentic faithfulness. The true worship from the heart that can be expressed in temple. And that's where we really need to pay attention to it. Because we are, can be, experience the same temptations. Where we can go through the motions on the service, gather at this building to worship, be Christian by name. But this is there's times when God has a, a challenging warning for God's people to be who you really say you are. That's where we really need to pay attention. Not the buying and the selling and the table flipping. That is on the way to paying attention to this. And so, now, I want to talk about, this is the most important part. All that was to try to Move through the weeds of a passage often abused and evoked and kind of drawn attention to for, I think, uh, not the best reasons on the way to these aspects of sincere faithfulness. Let's keep reading in Jeremiah 7 to see the first one. The first one is charity and justice for the marginalized. Check this out in Jeremiah 7. This is the next verse. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting 
and deceptive words that are worthless. The deceptive words are, you're participating in the worship pageantry. You're doing the worship routine. You're going to temple. But behind the scenes, I see all kinds of injustice towards the most vulnerable people in your society. Foreigners are not being treated well. The fatherless, the orphans are not treated well. And the widows aren't treated well. These were people that had the most vulnerability in that time. And it's like you can judge a society's faithfulness as God's people by how these people are treated. And it looks lacking. And so I mentioned both charity and justice here. Do you all know the difference between charity and justice? Charity, and ju- charity is like responding to a person in, a, in an impoverished situation, is helping someone who's experienced the impact of something, of, of, of poverty. Versus justice deals with the structural and systemic and cultural things that made that happen. A good metaphor or story would be if you are living downstream from a river and you regularly see bodies drifting down this river that are in pain and injured, you're rescuing those bodies and trying to help them recover. You're getting them back on their feet from, from that. But the justice person looks downstream to say, what is going on down the end of that river that keeps producing these people that are drowning? We should probably try to help that too. And for Christians... God's people, the call is to care for both people that are in the midst of hurting, but also take a step back and wonder, is there anything going on upstream beyond it all that I am a participant in, that I have any agency to respond to that, de- that addresses the systemic causes of this? Clearly, there's some tension there in our culture with how we deal with this. But what's unmistakable is how central this is to sincere faithfulness. This quote from Ronald Roheiser, I've, I've read two books by him recently, The Holy Longing and Sacred Fire. This sermon could have just been plagiarized by my man, because he says a lot better than I do, but if I just read it up here to you, it'd be kind of dry. So you should read those books. But here's the quote from him. He says, but as Jesus himself makes clear, there could be no real relationship with him when the poor are neglected and injustice, injustice abounds. When we make spirituality essentially a privatized thing cut off from the poor and the demands for justice that are found there, it soon degenerates into mere private therapy, an art form, or worse still, an unhealthy clique. It is that serious that we engage with the marginalized, the poor, people that are often pushed to the side and that are hurting the most in our culture. Jesus calls us to engage with that way. Ruhlheiser actually draws attention to the fact that in the scriptures, one out of every ten lines speaks of God's concern for the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, and anyone that's poor, anyone that's not doing well. Ten, one out of ten lines. In the Gospel of Luke, one out of every six lines. In James's letter, one out of every five lines. If you take scripture reading seriously, as we do here, you cannot not get slammed with the need to pay attention to the marginalized in the culture and wonder how God wants to help reach them and how we are supposed to play a role in that process. Rollheiser goes on here. He says, God cannot be related to without continually digesting the uneasiness and pain that are experienced by looking squarely and honestly at how the weakest members in our society are faring and how our own lifestyle is contributing to that. This is not something that a few liberation theologians, feminists, and social justice advocates are trying to foist on us. This is not a liberal agenda item. It is something that lies at the very heart of the gospel in which Jesus makes the ultimate criterion for our final judgment. He's referring there to the Matthew 25 parable of the sheep and the goats when Jesus is saying, hey man, one sign 
of the end, when God judges, is how we treated the poor, because the poor is Jesus. Jesus said, I was with them. I was them. What you did for the poorest and the weakest among you, you did to me. And so the call is never stop. And I love this way of describing it because the action step oftentimes for us in this moment is to do something to fix this to make the problem go away. It ain't going to go away until Jesus returns. But the thought of continually digesting a regular confrontation, a refusal to shut a blind eye and ignore the fact that the poor are among us, even maybe in this community at times, and that we are called to engage and respond to it. It's at the very heart of the gospel. This makes me want to revisit our conversations on racial justice and reconciliation. If you were with us late last summer, early fall, we spent like six weeks with honest, deep sermons and conversations around racial injustice in our culture, and, and we grieved the fact that in this, we are a mostly white church in this church, within like the most racially diverse township in Indiana. And we just talked about that that is not good news and a reason to grieve. But we also talked about lots of cultural factors that played into that, and white supremacy and his systemic racism. And it was a painful conversation to sit in. And I've confessed, I've struggled to know how to best follow through from that. I think that it takes a, it's really, it felt really hard for me to, you know, do 30 minutes at a time on that and really watch the words. And I found it really difficult to know how to, like, sum that up with, like, one-liners that don't do an injustice to it or don't send us down the tracks that the culture often puts that conversation in. But the sum of it was that this is a gospel issue. Way before America even existed and all of our various systemic sins around racism happened, this was a gospel issue that God is concerned for the marginalized, and that included how we treat people that are different than us. That sermon started with a scene in heaven in Revelation where the one, everybody in heaven has one thing in common. They're all surrounded Jesus and worshiping him. But what is not common, even in heaven, is that we are all racially and ethnically different. We retain our ethnic differences. And what we see in heaven is a beautiful harmony where God writes all the wrongs done to, uh, between races and between ethnicities. Surrounding him and the cross is what made that possible. That now invigorates us as spirit-led people to never stop paying attention to that. And we talked a lot about the economic impacts of uh, racism in this culture and how we maybe have participated in that. And so I want to just bring that back up. I know this is an awkward thing because, like, I think that after I preached the last sermon, five days later, my Achilles snapped. And I confess, man, that may have sent me for a loop a little bit. But I've struggled to know how to keep that in front of us. We've been doing the work. We've been doing the work. The Dekines... Uh, we're like, hey, we're going to take this to the next level. We're taking a trip down to visit civil rights museums. We want to have an education vision trip. Who wants to come with us? A few, a handful of our people did. All of our mission partners work primarily with people of color. At Deer Run, we're doing that. Kaleo's doing that. Vision Nicaragua is doing that. My Grasse is doing that. Allies is doing that. And so we are sh- uh, shoveling money and people towards that, and they are doing it in a healthy, uh, gospel-centered way. Then that, that is not to say we check the box. It's to say the work is happening. We're learning and growing behind the scenes. But we, I, as a mouthpiece here, need to keep that in front of us because God is never going to stop pulling us on that. So we've talked about how to like put that back on the website. 
I don't think the original thing that we talked about, making that a value, was, was working well for us. We need to think about doing it with more nuance. And I'm looking into this summer, hopefully having a better summary on our website, just so that, not to market anything, but so that for those of you that are coming after the fact, we had that conversation, I don't want you to be like surprised by the fact we're going to keep talking about it. The people that were in this community a year ago said in it deeply, I'll list all those sermons up there, and I encourage you to uh, revisit those and to sit in it so you're caught up to the fact that we are on this journey. But either way, it's a long-term journey. We're never going to stop confronting it, and we're inviting everyone into that process as God makes this community new. So I want to keep that in front of us. That's just one example of the charity and justice for the marginalized among many as a church that we want to be engaged in and paying attention to. Second non-negotiable of honest faith, personal worship, personal prayer, and moral integrity. Check this out. Next verse is in Jeremiah 7. We actually did this in the last one. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, they are doing idolatry and it's harming them. Will you steal and murder? That meant to be highlighted as well. Commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come before me and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bear my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And so you see, we had communal justice. How are we as a community treating the marginalized around us? But he also wants to zone in on the personal heart and worship. There's idolatry taking place here. You're worshiping other gods, and you're like, hey, that's not us. I'm not going to temples. I'm not sacrificing goats to Baal. Idolatry is when you make anything in this world a primary thing. When it's like Jesus or other things, even good things, when you make a good thing the most important thing, that's idolatry. And so what drove idolatry of gods in pagan temples was the same thing that drives our idolatry now. We're after money, sex, and power. We want to gratify our appetites, seek approval, and fulfill ambitions. That the idolatry was a way for people to get to do that, to commit brutality, to be greedy, to be sexually immoral. That's all happening when they go worship other gods. We are kind of beyond that in our minds now to where we're not going to like go sacrifice goats to Baal, but we are still tempted, even as Christian people, to want to put our hope and trust and chase security and fulfill our pleasures in something or someone other than Jesus instead of fulfilling all those things through Jesus. And when that happens, we see stealing and adultery and lies and falsehoods, which is a moral, moral reflections from the heart that are reflections of a heart that is not prayerfully worshiping Jesus. And so that is a, a core non-negotiable of Christian faith is is personal, private prayer in the moral integrity to back that up. More Rollheiser, he says, obviously to establish and maintain that, that is the discipleship life, including the charity and justice focus, we would need to pray honestly and deeply in private. This invitation is everywhere in the Gospels and is everywhere present in all the Christian churches. As Christians, we are asked to cultivate an intimacy with Jesus in private as the ultimate basis for our Christian discipleship. Meaning, we can go through the motions outside, but what is happening when we are in quiet, when we are alone, when we go within our thoughts, when we have moments of silence, is there a hunger? Don't think about, I'm a bad prayer, I don't know how to pray well. It's about the desire to connect with the Lord that flows from the heart. 
is a pursuit of that. And that actually grounds our charity and justice work, not in some ideology, not in like making sure our side wins, not about gaining power, but in flowing from a deep trust that Jesus is now the new king. One day he's going to make things right, and we would love to be open-handed to look for ways he's going to preview that victory in the present time. That is a different way of flowing from humility and public suffering, not in trying to conquer our opponents and win. That clouds the judgment of that. So it's grounded in a personal worship and moral integrity. It has to have moral integrity then. He says, in the Gospels, fidelity to keeping the commandments is one of the major criteria to discern whether or not our private prayer is real or whether it is illusion or worse, still a form of rationalization. Our prayer is honest only when our lives back it up. Let me sit down after that. Pause on that. Don't feel the guilt yet. <laughs> We're getting there. There are times when God is holding God's, his own people to the fire. This message is for God's people. It's not for the world out there. It's for people that want to follow Jesus. And he's drawing attention to what matters to him most. And so that goes hand in hand. Personal prayer, personal integrity would have to then flow into a social consciousness to care and love for all people. Both of these are non-negotiable. You will notice in our culture sides that tend to prioritize one or the other, do we not? And even whole church denominations will care more for personal relationship with Jesus, private morality, to the expense of uh, charity and concern for the poor. That's on them. They should be better people, have more character integrity. Then maybe God will take care of them. And there's whole denominations that are all in with justice and charity that lack a sense of emphasis on prayer and connecting with the Lord. And you will notice here that we are trying to pursue both and may offend both sides of it. So we circle back then. We had conversations on dependence on God that led into deep prayer. And then eventually in February, our sexuality conversations. This is all flowing from these emphases. I'm just trying to draw you a, a one string through what we're after here. And so people sometimes ask, like, what's our vision here? We're still discerning a lot of that. But one thing's for sure, this world has been chaotic in recent years. It's always been wacky, more wacky than we give credit for. But the past five or seven years, it's been particularly wacky. And the church is kind of caught up in that wackiness. And I'm longing for this community to be a small slice of heaven that is grounded in the life and teachings of Jesus that takes the whole gospel very seriously. Again and again, we come before the Lord, we read the actual gospel, we see his life verse by verse, we're not skipping any sections, and we're letting him call us into serious investment and worship of him, his whole person, and responding obediently to all that he asks of us, which is a lot. And it will challenge parts of us that we are hesitant to relinquish. And he has time and patience, though, to invite us into that. Will we take the time to pursue both all that he asked for in this process and let it challenge us? And so how will we respond to that challenge? We notice people, a few people listening to him. Chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. They knew exactly what he was doing. And began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Chief priests and teachers of the law have the most to lose by hearing this challenging message. 
Christian leaders still would have the most to lose, me included. I think the hardest part of this role is to become the kind of person that can say these things. I'm reading this all week and thinking, oh, my goodness, man. I know it has to be said. It's the next passage, but I'm ready to talk about it. But living it is very hard, very hard. I'm, I'm with you in that. I'm up here because I've had to read the stuff to know how to talk about it, but my life needs to catch up to all that Jesus asked for. And when I feel like he's challenging me, I have, we all have a lot to lose. And it's hard to let him take it from us. And so they feared, oh, if I took this really seriously, I may lose some part of my life that I really enjoy. For them, they had power wrapped up in it. They had their financial security wrapped up in it. They had their reputations wrapped up in it. And all of us have something to lose when Jesus is challenging us by calling us on the way to the cross. Everybody's dying when they follow Jesus. None of us are immune to the fact that it will feel like bearing a cross. We can be tempted to look at other crosses other people carry and think, that one seems lighter, a little less rugged. Everybody's dying. If we're sincere about following Jesus, it will cost us something on the way to the cross. And so will we not necessarily kill Jesus, but there's a sense of rejection. I don't want to pay attention to what he's asking of me. I want us to note that. Be honest about it. And this is the real thing I want to be after. How are we called to respond? Honest faith. Twice he talks about deceptive words. We get distracted from this passage and these sermon topics when we think it's about perfect faith. That paralyzes us because we know we have no chance. I want to just stretch us towards honesty. Honesty. We can all do honesty even when we're struggling. We may be imperfect, we will be imperfect, but we can all strive to be honest. Martin Luther has this line about sinning bravely and honestly. And that's not like, I'm going to sin on purpose. It's to say, be honest about it. This is a big challenge. Be honest with God, don't hide from him, and find a neighbor, maybe one person, to be honest with as well, and that God will work out the process there. So here's some things I want us to be honest about, some reflective questions for us. What is our natural reaction to the challenge? I I had three categories that came to my mind, and you may relate with one or more of these. The first is that guilt or shame, where you're like, oh my goodness, this is me. I'm terrible at being charitable and just. My prayer life is not what it should be. My moral life is in shambles. I'm going to hell, and God does not love me. Paralyzing and not truthful. There's a small partial truth there that is conviction, but all that like, I am in despair, there's no way out of this. If you grew up in a church background that was real good at making you feel like you were going to hell all the time, you still probably get influenced by that. And when you hear any challenge from a pastor or from the scriptures, you're likely to read through that lens. Pay attention to that. And you should be honest about it. Don't try to run from that. It's painful, but just be honest. I'm reading it through this lens. I feel a fear of rejection from God and abandonment. I don't want to be honest about what I see there because I fear when I do, God will punish me. He already sees it, though, and he loves you anyway. So you're free to be honest about the guilt and shame and about the stuff that would make you feel guilty or shameful. God has a way forward with that. Second way is avoidance. People that conflict, avoid it. Don't want conflict. You also don't want conflict with God. I pretend that doesn't exist. It's probably true, but it's over there, and I don't pay attention to it. Be mindful. This might be you. You might be the type that wants to avoid. That's okay, too. There is a partial truth there. God is for peace. God is for a restful spirit. There's a partial truth there. 
But we don't want fake peace. You don't want peace that doesn't avoid, that avoids truth. You want peace that confronts reality, and God's peace will come in the face of that. But just note, if you're the type that wants to avoid challenge, pay attention to that. You don't have to rush, just note it. Or self-justification. I will confront what he's calling me out for, but I will be quick to have my reasons that shift the blame, that say, this is not me. I, I did not do that. That's someone else's problem, and, or it's not true, or that's been abused by pastors previously, so I don't take it seriously. Ways to duck responsibility that actually confront it. Be mindful. These are interwoven. You may have periods where you do all of them. All we're asking for is to pay attention to it. Pay attention to it and be honest about it. Next, which one of these non-negotiables come more naturally to us? We should be honest. We live in a polarized culture, and if you think you aren't affected by it, you are. We, it's impossible not to be drawn in by a culture war that's the screaming match. You're influenced by it whether you like it or not. Just note, that has influenced me based on my upbringing, based on my friends, based on where I live and work, based on the problems that are up close and personal to me. Like, pay attention to those. Pay attention to those and be honest about them. Which one comes more naturally? And be honest about the effects. For example, if you more naturally are a charitable and justice-conscious person, you will be much more frustrated by those who are not up to speed with where you are on that. You will have less patience for them. You will have that righteous anger towards them. And I would challenge you to be mindful. That's just a strength of yours. Praise God, God gave you that. Now bring that strength to our community and help pull us towards you, but do so with humility and kindness and patience. And be ready to receive the challenge on the other side. Likewise, if you're a prayerful person, has high moral integrity, but feels like you're socially like free to encounter the hard stuff, like be mindful. Okay, Jesus called me to this. I have a strength to give around prayer. I will bring that to the community, and I want to learn from the body that is more advanced than me on the other side. Instead of in, uh, playing into that polarization and being mean to people and having contempt, let yourself be uh, giving what you can while receiving what you don't have. It's okay to be weak in something without feeling ashamed. It's okay to be strong in something without being arrogant and mean to people. You can be good at it and just be honest with us and with the community. And then what do we do with all that honesty? The same thing I tell you every single week. <laughs> we process both in prayer and community for the long haul and let the Spirit do the heavy lifting. The Spirit does the heavy lifting. Love and self-control and morality and justice and charity, those are fruits of the Spirit work in our lives, not us. We are honest with God we trust the Spirit, we're honest with each other, and the Spirit does the heavy lifting of actual communal and character and even social formation. But he can't do it without us being honest about it. Be honest with each other and be honest in prayer. I would drive us always to that. It's a scripture-centered church that drives us to encounter the Lord and the Spirit inside of our bodies who wants this more than you do. Out of love for you and me in this church, in this world, he's going to make things right. And we want to be a part of it when he does. And so as we do that, we say, Lord, I am a victim of and participant in a culture that's gone awry. I am at times a worshiper that has the hypocrisy. I do lack the justice and the charity. My life does need moral improvement. I long to turn to you in prayer and not avoid you. Help me, Lord. God can do a lot with the community who's willing to do that for the long haul. As Eugene Peterson says, we are after a long obedience in the same direction. 
We don't want to sprint for the summer. I want to know what kind of people we'll become in a decade. In two decades, if we just open our hands, tell God the truth, and say, Lord, please change us. Please help us reflect who you are. Please help us to become the way you want us to be. Please have patience with us along the way. And when we do that, he will remind us of the cross. He's already suffered for us, and it is finished. We are made his permanently. We are totally forgiven. His spirit now dwells in our bodies, even though we're not perfect yet. And he says, give me time, and we'll get there. God's got this. He will restore our things, and we get to participate with him for the long haul. Let's pray.